This is The Herb Walk with Jessica Baker. On this episode, we talk to Amanda Klenner. We discuss bioregional herbalism, the Mountain West Herb Gathering, and cannabis as a gateway herb. Join us on today's episode of The Herb Walk podcast on iTunes. So we are here with Amanda Klenner. Um, Amanda, why don't you tell us a little bit about your own personal history with herbalism and what got you interested in plant medicine? I started out in college uh, pre-med. I wanted to be a doctor when I grew up. And so I went to school. And while I was at school, I was working at the hospital Flagstaff Medical Center as cardiology tech. And while I was working at the hospital, in the line of duty, I got attacked by a patient. He was coming off of heroin, so it's pretty common. And he fell at me because he was tied up to all of these wires. You know, he had two IVs, a bunch of cardiac wires monitoring him. And he fell at me and I caught him. And, you know, and when you're taking your classes, your nurse's assistant classes, you're taught not to catch people when they fall. You're supposed to let them fall, but uh, it's kind of a human uh, reaction <laughs> to reach out and try to catch someone when they fall at you. Uh, so I caught him, bulged two discs, and my life as I knew it was over. I wasn't able to finish the program at that time. I had to move back in with my parents. I bulged two discs. I gained a bunch of weight because I couldn't work out. And my life just kind of went poof. And I think you're a healer. So, you know, a lot of people who tend to develop chronic health issues have this big trauma that happens. And then that big trauma goes poof. And, and then your whole life changes, your whole body changes. And so after bulging two discs, I developed a lot of gut pain, a lot of digestive pain. I developed um, fibromyalgia. I was on anti-inflammatories and opiates. I um, gained a bunch of weight and doctors almost killed me with medications a few times trying to resolve the symptoms, but they never tried to get down to the cause. My pain kept getting worse and my gut pain kept getting worse and my doctors told me that it was because I was fat and that I was lying to them about it, what I was eating. And so <laughs> this all cascaded into the fact that I have this education. I have this ability to do research. I have the ability to dig deep and figure out what's going on with my own body because the doctors didn't seemed like they didn't care at the time. They really were just being prejudiced that I was fat, but I was fat because of all of these other health issues. And, and I was done. I was just so done being treated like a lying sleazebag who's just lazy and doesn't want to do anything with their life. And that's exactly how the doctors made me feel. Through all of this, I also developed polycystic ovaries and endometriosis and all of the pain that goes along with that. So <laughs> from this cascade, from bulging two discs, right? Bulge two discs, developed fibromyalgia, my celiac disease decided to start manifesting. It's genetic in our family, but it wasn't really an issue until then. And I had polycystic ovaries and the doctors didn't help me at all other than just throwing drugs at me. It's a really long way of saying then I got into herbalism. I did research. I learned about eating real food, um, you know, whole foods that come out of the ground or grass-fed animal uh, products, you know, ethical eating, not eating a bunch of junk, not eating the food pyramid. Eating eight servings of grains a day for me is detrimental to my health. Once I started eating, you know, three quarters of my diet being vegetables, the rest being, you know, organic pasture-raised meats, a few whole grains here and there, and like my whole life changed. And so from there, I decided to join um, an apprenticeship 
in Washington. I studied with a woman named Gail. She was a wise woman herbalist. And then I've done a ton of, you know, online classes and distance classes and apprenticeships and internships. And it's just became my passion. Herbalism, I say herbalism is a rabbit hole. You just kind of fall into it. <laughs> you can't really climb back out. <laughs> well, you don't really want to climb back out. No, it's a good place to be. And so, <laughs> you know, I've been an herbalist for almost, we're on eight years now, I think. And I just, I love it. It's it's my life. I don't have polycystic ovaries anymore. I'm able to, able to control my body, my pain with herbs. I don't have to take any drugs or medication. And my life, I'm just so much happier and so much more fulfilled with herbalism in my life instead of what it could have been had I just gone the medical route, I think. Yeah, definitely. And like you talked about earlier, yeah, I think we all had a pretty major health crisis that pushed us into herbalism. I mean, I see that with my clients with acupuncture. Yeah. They're desperate. They've done it all. And now they're willing to, you know, try whatever, even that yeah. if whatever is like the most simple, basic thing you could do, which is eat vegetables <laughs> and, you know, go out in nature sometimes, you know. Yeah. And drink your nourishing herbal infusions and sit by a tree. <laughs> yeah. Most of my clients are people who've been failed by the medical system who just they're done. You know, I specialize in autoimmune conditions and infertility and digestive stuff. And in most cases, my clients come to me and they're like, I have done everything the doctor said. And now, you know, they're saying there's no hope. What can I do? <laughs> it's amazing what a little giant change and some nourishing herbs can do. It really is. It's magical. Yeah, it's definitely true. And once your mindset changes a little bit too, I think that, I mean, not that it opens yourself to the possibilities of like nature can actually heal you. But just that you gain some self-confidence because once you feel better, you kind of, you know, you remember what like the old you was like before the injury or before the illness. So, yeah, I mean, you've only been an herbalist for eight years, which is a long time, but it seems like you've accomplished a lot in those eight years in terms of not only helping your clients, but you have a magazine, the Natural yep. Herbal Living magazine. Why mm -hmm. don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, what inspired you to start the magazine and what the magazine offers its readers? So I mentioned my hodgepodgey herbal education. I didn't get to go to a cool big school where you get everything handed to you. I had to learn a lot and figure out what I wanted to learn on my own. And so I have a ton of herb books. Like we have a room full of herb books and, uh, you know, audio stuff and, and I, you know, digging through all of this information, digging, 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 and trying to figure out if I should use marshmallow instead of slippery elm for my digestion, you know, and I'm really trying to figure out what the difference is between these two herbs. And I think, you know, you know, because you're an acupuncturist, a lot of herbalists come into herbalism with a basis of an energetic model. So when you go to a school, an herb school, you get, you know, Chinese energetics or Ayurvedic energetic, you know, model, or you get a Western energetic model. I didn't learn that first. <laughs> yeah, I didn't either. I learned like from Jane Bothwell, go outside, yeah. <laughs> meditate with the plant. Let's drink some tea. Let's sing some songs. Um, uh -huh. And that's my favorite way to learn, really, just because I always want to sing the songs. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. That's one of the best things about herbalism. But I didn't have an energetic model to plug herbs into, and I didn't know how to choose between what herb and another one. And when I was looking through the books, right, and all of the great herbalists do this in their books, and I'm pretty sure it's the publisher's influence, you know, they write a monograph. Chamomile is great for calming, and sometimes it's good for babies' upset tummies. There's your chamomile monograph. 
you know, it might be three or four sentences long. But what else does chamomile do? It does all of these things. Why does it help digestion? It's because, you know, it's a bitter. It's good for people who have a lot of nervous digestion and have digestive issues when they're anxious. I find that it helps people who have certain types of food allergies and certain types of food sensitivities to help kind of calm their digestion and help reduce inflammation in the gut so the gut can heal. You know, chamomile has all of these different things that it does. It's not just a calming nervine, right? It does all of these other things. I find that in a lot of the herb books, we aren't able to sing the glory of each plant friend because if we did, the book would be 500 million pages long. (laughs) (laughs) But on the same note, people who are learning herbs on their own, which is a ton of people, there are so many people right now getting into more natural health, natural healing they don't know that chamomile can do all of these different things because they read that little paragraph in the book and they assume that's where that's where chamomile ends, you know. St. John's wort, we see it's great for mood, but we don't hear all of the other awesome stuff it does. Like it's one of my favorite liver uh, support herbs to support detoxification, especially when people have excess hormones in their body. You know, and so these things aren't being mentioned in books because there's just not room. And I think this is sad. Another part of herbalism that I think is important is building a personal relationship with the plants. So if we really want to get hippy-dippy about it, making plant friends, you know. (laughs) I can walk down to a little stream here and see all the cottonwoods. I can go up to the cottonwoods and say, I know you, you know. We have a soul connection, me and cottonwood. And I think that soul connection is also missing in a lot of the new people who are coming into herbalism today. People want to use herbs like they're drugs, but herbs aren't drugs. Herbs aren't just phytopharmaceuticals. They're, they're spirit medicine, too. And then we have the essential oils and the aromatherapy and all of the safety issues that are coming up because of unsafe education around aromatherapy. And so all of these things, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if there was a resource that had all of this information in it where we could just dig deep and really get nerdy with one herb a month. And Rosemary Gladstar, you know, that's one of the things she suggests is pick, you know, one herb a month and really just dig deep and learn all about it. Drink the tea, smell the essential oil, put it in some oil, rub it all over you, take a bath with it, get to know these plants. And, you know... And so that's what I do. That's why I publish this magazine, where you can really just get nerdy about one herb a month. So we're recording this now in September. So this month's herb is Skullcap. And Skullcap is actually one of the few herbs that I've picked that really have a specific kind of niche. You know, it's not an overall whole body herb that does all these miraculous things. It's a fantastic nerve nourishing herb. It's a nice nerving and does all these other things. But, you know, most of the time we pick stuff like chamomile and nettles and red clover. We have burdock next month in October, you know, just to kind of get geeky with these herbs and really learn about them and what they can do. The herb box, does that correlate with the monthly subscription to the magazine? So like this month is also skullcap for the herb box? Yeah, so if people internationally are listening, um, the magazine is available online in PDF from the website, naturalherballiving.com. And that's $4 a month. You can get that worldwide. Most of our issues, past issues are on Amazon too. And you can even get imprinted 
on paper on Amazon if you want. But the herb boxes are great for people who live in the United States who really want to get their hands on these plants, but they don't want to go onto Mountain Rose Herbs and order a pound of burdock. You know, they just want to get to know it. And so what they can do is they can subscribe to the herb box and the herb box subscription comes with a magazine subscription built in. And what you get in the herb box is really fun. You get the herb, whatever that herb of the month is. So this month is skullcap. So they'll get three ounces of skullcap lateriflora herb. They will get a nice herbal nourishing, nerving tea, a nice nerve nourishing tea. They'll get skullcap tincture. They'll get skullcap flower essence. And they're getting the ingredients to make a skin toner. So every month you get the herb, you get a tea, you get uh, tinctures, flower essences. Sometimes you get fun little things like soap, chai, you know, mixes like that. And then you get the ingredients to make something with that herb, to take your knowledge from that herb and develop it even further. I love the idea of herbal CSAs, but that's the herbalist making this stuff for you. And I think one of the, the, I know one of the very best ways that we can get to know herb on a really deep level is to work with them, to taste them, to feel them, to smell them, to make medicine with them and help them, have them help guide us. So the herb box is kind of an education box. Um, not only do you get some awesome stuff, but you also get the ingredients to work with this herb and make medicine with it. And then you can take that you know, knowledge that you've gained and just take it further into your own studies. It's also a good way to try out herbs. So if you don't know if you want to work with burdock or not, if you don't know if that's the right herb for you, it's nice to be able to try it out and be like, yes, I need this or no, I do not need this at all. <laughs> Here, Grandma, you can have this. You know, it's nice to have that ability to have the hands-on work with the plants. That's wonderful. I really am excited about that. I didn't realize what all the herb box entailed, so now I'm even more excited um, to subscribe. (laughs) Um, And you brought up a good point about, you know, trying out this herb and seeing if this herb is right for you because we know that not every person is meant to have the same formula or had the same herb. We kind of spoke about energetics earlier, but you provide an internship. What type of information are you providing your students in terms of herbal education? Yeah, and this is this also comes from my hodgepodge education in herbalism. I've noticed that a lot of herbalists don't have a really good grasp of anatomy and physiology, and I've noticed that a lot of good people who want to get into herbalism as a form of medicine don't always have a plant spirit connection. And I think both of these are really important for us to be good herbalists. And so what I do in my program is I teach anatomy and physiology of the human body. And then I incorporate that into the energetic models of herbalism. I tend to switch between Western energetics and Ayurvedic energetics. Um, In my teaching, I teach energetic models. I teach how to customize herbs based on the person and their symptoms and their energetic picture. I teach um, plant spirit medicine. We go out and we meditate with plants. We sit with the trees. We listen. I think that's one of the most important things I teach in my uh, apprenticeship and is to listen and just shut up and listen for a second because we don't do that. We're so inundated with our society with all this noise that we've learned to tune out everything. That's what a lot of modern, you know, allopathic medicine is. It's telling the body to shut up. I don't have time for you to be in pain right now, so just stop it. It's not fixing the problem. It's just making it silent for a little bit. And so one of the things I really like to teach is listening. So we go out 
We go on hikes. We learn the botany of the different plants, um, specifically in Colorado. I'm a bioregional herbalist, so I like to work as much as possible with the plants that grow around us. And so we go out and we meditate with hawthorn and we pick up cottonwood buds and we dig up yellow root and we just, we play with the plants. But at the same time, we also have classroom hours where we sit down and we learn anatomy and physiology and how that applies to us as an herbalist. Because a lot of times I don't need to know that somebody has fibromyalgia, right? I need to know that they're in a chronic, dry, inflamed condition where they have all of these energetic things. We don't need a diagnosis. And we are back with Amanda Klenner talking about her apprenticeship in Westminster, Colorado. I really like working with our local abundant plants. And one of the reasons I really like, well, two of the reasons I really like working with our local abundant plants is first, I have a relationship with the place, with the places where I harvest. I do ceremony there. I thank the plants. I thank the earth. And I watch the different stands. I watch them grow and I watch them shrink and I see what's new this year. I found that seeing what's new this year is a great way to figure out what diseases are going to be happening. (laughs) in the next year. Um, So for example, I got a ridiculous amount of hawthorn this year. I made probably two gallons of tinctures of fresh hawthorn berry this year and a gallon of flower and leaves this year. You know, this makes me think that I'm I'm either going to be dealing with a lot of broken hearts this next upcoming year, or I'm probably going to be dealing with a lot of heart disease this next upcoming year. Because people tend to come in waves with whatever problems they have. They come in waves for me to work with. And I don't know why that is. So that's one reason I like to be bioregional. The other reason is that the plants that I'm working with here in Colorado are dealing with the same environmental stressors that I am. And those environmental stressors are, the plants are producing phytochemicals, right? To deal with these stressors. And those phytochemicals are specific against the stress that these plants are experiencing here in Colorado. And I am also living here in Colorado. I'm experiencing these same stressors and so by using these plants at medicine, as medicine, I find it's a little bit more, I don't know if it's just an energetic thing or if it's very much a physical thing, but it's definitely different medicine that I make from my hawthorn, the patch that I've been working with for years, as opposed to buying dry hawthorn from someone where it was grown somewhere else and then making medicine from it. The third reason I really like being a bioregional herbalist is I'm able to sustainably and ethically harvest plants. So I know not to harvest something if it's endangered or over-harvested, or if it looks like it's just not a good year for that plant, it's struggling. So I teach all of these things in my apprenticeship. And one of the things I'm doing, actually, I was going to start it this October 2016, but I'm pushing it back to February so that I can retool some of the classes so some of the lectures can be online so people can just view them from their home and don't have to come to my house as often. So I'm hoping to kind of take it down from two Saturdays and one Wednesday night a month to one weekend a month. And on the weekends, we'll be out wild harvesting and working with the plants and meditating and doing the plant spirit medicine stuff. And then people can have control of their own ability to watch the anatomy and physiology, emailing questions on their own time. That's an adjustment I'm making this year. And so it's going to be videos then? So the anatomy and physiology is going to be on video. It's what I'm doing this winter. It's my project. And then people will have the ability to comment in a group format to the rest of the people in the class and ask questions. So um, I've been teaching it in my home. I'm hoping to expand the apprenticeship to more than five people a year. I'm hoping this year to have 10. 
And that's a lot of people to put in my kitchen. Definitely. (laughs) So I'm hoping to be able to do the lecture part at least on video so that we have more time with the plants and more time with medicine making and all that fun stuff. Yeah, that's great. I feel like just, you know, there's a few other schools that... um, I guess they're actual herb schools, though, and not apprenticeships that do a lot yeah. of online learning. I'm just mm-hmm. so different than when I started studying herbalism in the <laughs> 90s, where literally you were in someone's kitchen and yeah. they were, you know, gracious enough to have, you know, either five, 10 or almost 30 people in their house, if you know, oh, depending gosh. on the class. Yeah. Um, so it's really great. Just the opportunities that, you know, new herbalists and herbalists like me who just want to learn more. Um, Mm -hmm. We can actually learn that in our own time now. So that's great. Do you offer any other classes or workshops throughout the year? So I'm going to teach another immune system. So we're going to teach, make elderberry syrup and talk about adaptogens Um, at the end of October. And that's going to be at my house. You can find, I'll send you a link to the class. That'll be on my website under naturalherballiving.com backslash shop under um, herbal education and resources. So I'm going to teach a class on adaptogens and elderberry syrup in October. And then November and December, I'm going to have a series of classes based on one's going to be on digestion because, you know, the holidays. We're going to make bitters. (laughs) Nice. Perfect. (laughs) And one's going to be on making infused sugars and salts. That's probably going to be before Thanksgiving. And then I'll do two, I always do two gift making classes um, going into December. So one we make lotion and body butter and in another one we make bath salts and sugar scrubs. I like making gifts. It's a lot more personal, a lot more fun to play with stuff and make gifts than it is to just go to Target and buy something. I'm going to call out a couple members of my family when I make them gifts and then I come visit and there's like five years of herbal things I've made them that they never <laughs> use. <laughs> But hey, you know, it is. I want to make them gifts too. So I totally understand. (laughs) So, I mean, we've already talked about um, your apprenticeship and your classes. I know I really enjoyed the Mountain West Herb Gathering that you put on in June of 2016. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how important it was for you to have a bioregional conference like you did. And, Mm -hmm. you know, anything you learned from the event or just... You know, any thoughts you have on putting on um, a gathering? That is a big question. It could be a whole nother podcast, but <laughs> I loved what happened at the Mountain West Herb Gathering, and it wasn't entirely planned. There was a lot of spirit. There was a lot of song. There was so much connection. There was a spirit connection between so many people, just connecting people. And I, I really, this is kind of the theme of my life. I'm one of those people who's like, hey, you, you need to know this person over here. And that's kind of what the herb conference was on a really big scale, is connecting people in our herbal community here in Colorado who live, you know, people who live in the Rocky Mountains or people from New Mexico, people from California, people from Montana. And it was really nice to connect with people who are working with the same plants in the same space that we are and to figure out what other people were doing. I liked the fact that it was a nice balance between the science and what I lovingly call the woo, you know, the plant spirit stuff and the singing and the drumming and the crystal bowls. It was just a really beautiful connection that was made. And the reason I wanted to have a bioregional conference is that we are all working with the same plants. We're working in the same regions and we're all seeing the effects that climate change is having on the plants 
and on the people in Colorado and in the West generally. You know, there's less water, there's less snowpack, things like the bark beetles that are coming through. There's that weird virus that hits the rose family plants. It was really nice to just connect and be get geeky with other people who are out there working with these plants and building that spirit connection with the land. I loved it. I learned so much at the conference. I would say my one regret is that I lost a lot of money on the conference. So for those of you out there <laughs> dreaming about starting a conference, be sure you have a lot of extra funding ahead of time. And if anybody wants to support the Herb Conference debt, they're welcome to. There's GoFundMe. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you being honest about that because I know, I mean, I've only put on very, I mean, just putting on a class is hard enough. Putting on an entire conference is just an endeavor that we need people like you to put on. But it's good to know that like, hey, there is like a reality to it of finances and like most things, they cost more than we actually think they're going to. Yeah, it was definitely, there were a lot of unexpected expenses that popped up the last minute. And I think That's one of those trial and error things. But I was just talking to another person planning another conference today. And she was like, I'm losing so much money. And I was like, oh, honey, I hear you. Right. (laughs) Well, and we there has to be a way to do it to where people don't go broke because we want them to continue because we, we need those gatherings to continue. Yeah. And like next year, I was planning on having a gathering as big as the one we had in 2016, but I don't think that's financially feasible, and my husband might leave me if I do that. So what we're going to do is something a little bit smaller, something a little closer to nature. I'm thinking two days, um, maybe two and a half days, like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, to where we can go out and camp, and people can be more responsible for their own food and get a little closer, get dirty, get in the dirt, do ceremony, you know. And so if anybody has any ideas of where we can do that in Colorado that's affordable, that would be fantastic. Because I want it to happen. And there was so much good that came out of the conference. We just need to find a way to make it more financially viable. And I know that's a real problem talking to other people who've, you know, planned herb conferences, that financing is an issue. And I know herbalists don't have a ton of money to throw at conferences. And so it's an interesting conundrum to be in. I would love to see a community of people get together and try to figure out, you know, how to make this good for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. My favorite herbal conference is the Women's Herbal Conference in Northern California, the Northern California Women's Herbal Symposium. And uh, we're all camping. And let me, that is my favorite. One, I love to be outside, but I just feel like as herbalist, camping at the end of the day and being close to nature feels just right. You know, Mm -hmm. like Breckenridge was amazing because, I mean, having our own kitchen and having our own amenities, that was wonderful. But it also felt weird being on a ski resort for someone who's like, you know, (laughs) it's like, but I get it because we had the National Forest right there. And so we could go be in the forest and that was great. But I'm a big proponent of camping. So one next year camping, I'm definitely there. Yeah, I, I think camping's definitely in the in the picture next year. I was trying to be more gentle to those who aren't campers, but I think at the end of the day, to make it more financially feasible, that's just one of the ways we're going to have to go. Yeah, and it's <laughs> nice to be able to appease everyone as well because some people can't physically camp, and they, you know we can't leave yeah. people out for sure. My husband's complaint about camping with herbalists is the drum circle, so you can't go to sleep until three in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> He just needs earplugs, you know. <laughs> Everybody needs earplugs sleeping around him anyway. I figured the drum circle just evens out the snoring. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just act like it's an animal and then we feel, you know, right. 
little closer to nature. Um, <laughs> let's take a break because um, it's definitely break time. Got so, it. Um, I guess I'm supposed to make an official break. My husband's way better at this than me. So we'll be back with Amanda Klenner talking about the future of herbalism, cannabis, and more fun things like that. We're back with Amanda Klenner, herbalist and publisher of Natural Herbal Living Magazine. Amanda, we were just talking about the Mountain West Herb Gathering and how important it is that we gather together to remember what herbalism is actually about, which is being out in nature, having a connection with plants. And at least for me, I feel like, you know, if one of us has this deeper connection to plants, then really, you know in this altruistic mode if the whole world really is going to improve if we become healthier and happier people. And there's so many different routes to herbalism. You talked about you had this medical background because you were going to be a medical doctor. And then you actually had more of like a folk herbalism education. So, yeah. you know, you, you mentioned it's important that you feel like herbalists know anatomy and physiology but in terms of certification, how do you feel about that? If people want to be herbalist and they want to work clinically, do you think it's important that they have some formal education or certification? I'm probably not the best person to ask that question <laughs> to. Because <laughs> the answer is I don't know. I'm still kind of on the fence. On one hand, I'm working toward my American Herbalist Skilled Professional Membership so that if we are, as herbalists, forced to say, hey, but what are your qualifications? What's your education? Then I'll have that and say, but look, all of these amazing people said I'm competent. <laughs> it's almost like other people saying, yeah, you're not going to kill anybody. So that's always good. When my grandma was growing up, right, they were poor. My grandma was literally an Okie. She was one of the people who fled um, the Dust Bowl from Oklahoma and moved to Arizona with her family. They were actually trying to get to California, but California closed the borders so they couldn't get in. When my dad and his siblings got sick, my grandma would do all sorts of weird stuff to treat them, like, you know, make garlic ear oil <laughs> and rub it on their, along, you know, along their eustachian tubes. Um, she would make chicken soup when the kids had a cold. She would, she was a folk herbalist. She just didn't call herself that because it was a talent that everybody had. Our grandmothers and our mothers were able to say, oh, look, you have the chicken pox. Here's an oatmeal bath. They had this knowledge, this knowing of how to, you know, treat a kid who has colds or measles, you know. It was common knowledge. And since World War II, this common knowledge has been lost. And we could blame that on a lot of things, but I'm not going to point a finger. I'm just, you know, today parents take their kids to the doctor because they have a viral cold and not even a really bad one. And it's because parents are scared. They don't have the power to treat their own children for basic things that the doctors can't even help with. There's nothing you can do for a cold other than rest and chicken soup, right? As herbalists, obviously, we know, you know, well, this is antiviral and that's antiviral and this has been shown to decrease the, the length of symptoms and all that fun stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, that common knowledge of how to treat a cold has been lost in our culture. And so I think anybody should be able to treat a cold 
or a sore throat or, you know, an earache, things that aren't big deals, things that don't need doctors. I think people should have the ability to be able to treat themselves um, and the knowledge and the power because that's what it is. It's power knowing that you're not going to die from a sore throat (laughs) because you can take these herbs and feel better. Doing what I do, I specialize in autoimmune conditions. I don't think people, and I mean, as an acupuncturist, you know, too, people shouldn't be sticking people with needles unless they know where those needles go, right? Right, absolutely. (laughs) There's a certain amount of education that needs to be had in order to do that. And I think the same goes with trying to work with a long-term chronic condition that can ha- that has real long-term effects on health and well-being. So I don't know that I would want my sister treating somebody's fibromyalgia because she's a lab tech. She's not a trained herbalist. Do I think you need a certificate? No, but it's nice to know that whoever it is that you're being, that you're working with has some formal education, you know? But I don't know that I want to be regulated. Actually, I know I don't want to be regulated. On the same note there, there are a lot of people out there who say, yeah, I'm an herbalist who don't have any education at all. And so there's a problem there. But I don't know how to fix it. You um, know? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I feel very similar that <laughs> there's healers all over the world that don't know Latin names or don't know anatomy and physiology or they, you know, and they're healing their entire community. So oh, yeah. it's a hard thing to say of a formal education versus not because I have both and I appreciate both. But I yeah. hear all sorts of people making all sorts of crazy claims. And it's disheartening because, one, people are searching for health so badly that they'll take someone's bad advice and then say, well, herbalism herbalism didn't work for me. And it was like, well, you didn't go to someone who actually was practicing herbalism and understood at least some form of holistic medicine in terms of we need to change your diet. You need to meditate or do yoga or qigong or something, you know, like a holistic approach. They were like, take this echinacea for 10 days. And it's like, well, that's not a healthcare program. That's not what herbalists do, you know. There are a lot of companies out now who are giving bad health advice their employees or their downlines or whatever to where people, you know, they're saying, hey, you know, you can take this really, really, really potent, strong medicine internally forever and it'll be great and you'll live forever. You know, I mean, the claims out there are ridiculous and they're harming people. And so something has to change. And I think if something doesn't change, we will be forced into regulation. Right. And we definitely don't want to be forced into regulation. Um, I yeah. mean, I think the thing that has to change is, one, the mindset of the consumer, not to call people consumers, but that's what they are when they're just looking for some quick fix or some new, it's like, here's the new panacea that's great for everything. We need uh-huh. to educate ourselves and, you know, everyone else about what longevity and what health actually look like, what it looks like, and that looks like a process that becomes a lifestyle that mm-hmm. becomes a way of being not just I you know it's not the pill popping mentality that's not what health is you know yeah um, but that's what people want unfortunately it is we're so used to having drugs and it's funny cuz drugs are such a new thing i know in humanity they're so new 
But people really want that quick fix because, damn it, we're in a hurry and we're busy and we're stressed and we have 500 million things going on. Well, and, and they're oh so God. good at manipulating advertising. I mean, mm-hmm. I just took a persuasion marketing workshop and I'm like, holy shit, the things <laughs> we do to people. I mean, no wonder they don't listen to the side effects on the pharmaceutical commercial because everything yeah. else in the commercial gets them to focus on the beauty of it. And, you know, you're going to have an erection forever and your wife will stay with you, <laughs> not the 10 other don't, things that are going to potentially kill you. Yeah. Don't worry about the fact that your heart might explode. That's fine. Right. Who needs because a heart? you can have three hour long <laughs> sex because nobody wants that, by the way. Men. <laughs> nobody wants that. Um. <laughs> Especially not women in your age group that they're barking the pill towards. It's like... <laughs> Unless they've worked on their menopausal dryness, you know, then like it's fine. Yeah, I um, mean, teach their own. That's great if they did, but <laughs> not something that I've ever heard a woman say. You know what I want to do? Yeah, absolutely <laughs> not. Hours. I no. know. So too funny. Um, well, I, that doesn't segue into my next conversation, but I guess it could <laughs> for those who like to um, use substances like cannabis instead of Viagra. But just with the future of herbalism, and you know claims of, um, you know, the panacea of the cure-all. Cannabis is totally in everybody's thoughts these days, whether it's for recreational purposes or medicinal. I know I have concerns about a lot of the cannabis products on the market. Um, What is your feeling about, you know, using cannabis in an herbal regimen and just the future of where you see cannabis legalization going? Well, I'm going to say I'm really um, I'm really happy about the fact that cannabis um, is becoming more accepted as not just a recreational drug, but as medicine. It's interesting if you look at some anthropology papers, t- <laughs> this, is, this is totally geeky. Um, if you look at anthropology pr- papers about the spread of cannabis, you'll find that nomads, um, the, the people who were before the, um, Mongols and the Mongols would take cannabis and they would travel with it and they would plant it wherever they went. It was one of those really important plants. Like we have Yerba Santa here in the Southwest. The Mongols would just take cannabis and plant it wherever they would go. So they would always have this plant with them. We have these cannabinoid receptors in our body and one of the plants that is legal to use that also has cannabinoids is hops, right? How often do people use hops all the damn time? (laughs) You drink a beer, you're probably (laughs) drinking hops. And so we have this, um, we can produce endocannabinoids too, you know, but I find a lot of people seem to have a deficiency of the endocannabinoids. And so I think cannabis can be a real good medication. The problem is with the industry today is how it's grown. It's doused in pesticides and fungicides and it's, um, I kind of think of it as plant torture, you know, it's left uh, inside, it's grown inside and hydroponic solution. It's, you know, very strict lighting schedules. And I understand why, because you can really control the quality of the product that you get when you do these things. But at the same time, I don't like my medicine doused in poison. And then you look at the way cannabis is extracted. Um, so if people aren't just smoking the, the weed, the flower... Um, you look at the extraction methods and, you know, using butane, an oil derivative, to extract your um, constituents from the cannabis has health consequences too. So it's doused in pesticides, it's extracted in butane, 
Um, and the and people like making the extractions aren't chemists or trained in how to make a pure substance. I mean, so yeah. there's so much butane left in yeah. the product. Yeah. And we don't need and, butane extractions. This is supposed to be about health. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, if you're using something for medicine, I truly believe that it should be as pure as possible. Um, and the way cannabis is produced right now makes me sad. That being said, there are things like there are people growing organic cannabis. There are people focusing on more medicinal strains and less psychoactive strains. There are people, and I don't mind the psychoactive, I'm just, there's more variety now than there used to be. It's not the Mexi Mexican ditch weed of the 90s, you know? Right. Um, there's more quality out there, but you really have to hunt for it. They have carbon dioxide extractions, which is a much cleaner way to extract the plant, but it also costs more. So then people would have to pay a lot more for the carbon dioxide extract than they would from the butane extract. And then depending um, on what pesticides they're using, you know, it's going to, the if it's like at a low polarity, it's then going to be extracted into the CO2. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes. in, into the product. So it's like, again, they need to know something about the polarity of the pesticide and whether or not that's getting into their extraction. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I, I think cannabis is a fantastic medicine. And honestly, as far as recreational drugs go, I would much rather people be on you know, pot, be smoking some weed, then alcoholic, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Or on uh, Prozac or one of the other pharmaceuticals oh, with yeah. the weird side effects that says you may have suicidal or homicidal behavior. Right, exactly. Or, <laughs> you know, any, yeah, any of the mood modifiers, any like opiates, cannabis, way better than opiates on many levels, you know, um, there's so many drugs that people use and abuse to not feel things. And again, that's one of those other things where you don't listen. I think some people do use cannabis in that way to say, you know, shut up brain. I don't want to listen to this right now. But if you're going to be abusing a substance, some organic pot, in my opinion, would be better than most of the other substances you can abuse. On the same note, though, it is abuse. It's like cigarettes, right? So tobacco is a sacred plant. When Native Americans smoke tobacco, they're sending prayers into the air. So whenever people smoke a cigarette, what do you do when you go out and smoke a cigarette? When I was a smoker working on the cardiology ward at the hospital, you know, I went outside because that was the only way I could get a break. So I was stressed. So I'm puffing out the stress into the air every time I go out and have a cigarette every two hours. Right. And that's abuse of tobacco. Smoking tobacco in a ritualistic way, in a sacred way, in a way that's made for medicine is different than smoking tobacco because you're stressed and pissed off and you don't want to murder somebody. So you're going to have some nicotine instead. And I think it's, Similarly, with cannabis, there's use of this herb as a medicine. There's use of this herb to relax. It's nice and gives you a nice feeling, you know, for most people. Some people don't feel good on cannabis, and that's fine. That's that energetic thing again. I don't think it should be illegal because you can abuse it <laughs> because otherwise people shouldn't be allowed to eat by food, you know? That's a really big, blotchy answer about cannabis, but I think it's good medicine. And I'm really excited to see what's going to happen as it becomes legal in more states. I've been pretty pleased with what's happened with cannabis in Colorado. I would be, love it if other states would legalize recreational cannabis so that the tourism industry could change back a little bit more. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note, let's take a quick break and then we're going to okay. come back and I have a couple other questions about cannabis for you. Okay, sounds good. 
So we're back with Amanda Klenner, herbalist from Westminster, Colorado, talking about, you know, all of the good things that cannabis has brought to the forefront in terms of working with herbal medicine, because I feel like now that cannabis has, you know, gotten more popular, even to the quote unquote normal people, um, I think it's going to shed more light on herbalism in general. How do you feel, have you noticed with you know, your own friends or clients that cannabis has kind of been this, like, if we want to call it the gateway herb into maybe people accepting herbalism more? I definitely think it has an impact on people wanting to work with herbalism more. I think one of the things that I find, so I do farmer's market, right? I'm at Arvada Farmer's Market every Sunday in the summer. Um, And at my booth, people come up and they say, do you have anything with CBD in it for pain? You know, do you have anything with hemp in it? Do you have, you know, what do you think about juicing cannabis leaves? Because it's not psychoactive. They ask me all these questions and I don't sell products. I I have a salve that has some CBD in it, but I don't otherwise sell cannabis products. They're so highly regulated. It's not worth it. I think cannabis definitely is a gateway herb. And I think one of the reasons why is because there's more and more research coming out on the medicinal benefits. And so all of the people who really want that evidence that hard scientific double blind placebo based study evidence that they're finding it in cannabis and they found it in turmeric too um, and a few other really well researched herbs and I think those herbs that are researched well that have the funding um, to have some good scientific evidence behind them work well as gateway herbs to say I'm glad you like this awesome standardized extract but why don't you try the whole plant and see what happens it's like reverse herbalism. <laughs> right. No, it, it is. And, you know, Ethan Russo, thankfully, as a researcher, is really, he really touts the benefit of whole plant medicine and the synergistic effect of all the constituents and not just saying just CBD or just, you know, whatever, silly marin if we're talking about milk thistle. So good. So you have noticed, it, like at the farmer's market, that people are coming up to you specifically for cannabis-related products, whether it be CBD or psychoactive. Or- oh, yeah, and these yeah, and these aren't hippies coming to me. These aren't like old deadheads. These are, you know, these are engineers. These are people coming out of, you know, their very conservative church and their very conservative clothing and asking me about it. I mean, these are people who aren't, who aren't naturally inclined, but they still are really interested in the benefits of these plants. And I find that really opens up a wider array of saying, okay, so you have pain. What else have you done other than trying to use cannabis? You know, have you considered changing your diet? <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a doorway to saying, you know, great, I'm glad this helps. If you would like to sustain that, maybe we should look at something else in addition to, um, or whatever it is they're using. But it, Usually it's cannabis. (laughs) Right. It's cannabis. And then it kind of stops there. So it is, I mean, part of our responsibility and I think our passion is to remind them that there are hundreds of other plants out there that they can use and that just using one isn't going to be complete, even if they did add it to maybe two other herbs, you know, whether it's smoking Mm -hmm. it or making it into a salve or whatever. In the last couple minutes we have, why don't you just give us your big takeaway message for herbalists? What is it if somebody is interested in learning about herbs or wants to get more serious in their herbal practice? What piece of advice do you have for them? Don't get too serious. <laughs> um, 
it's really easy to fall into that business mindset uh, of, you know, why would I do this if I'm not going to make a bunch of money? And I can tell you from talking to a lot of really successful herbalists that we're not herbalists for the money. (laughs) We're just not. Um, It would be nice. It's nice to be able to pay rent being an herbalist. But um, at the end of the day, I think people can get really serious about it and just get very dogmatic about their belief system around healing, whatever it is. Um, and I think that dogma blocks the true creative nature of herbalism because it really is a creative endeavor. It's, it's your soul. You're give, every time you make medicine, you're giving a piece of your spirit away. And to never lose that sense of wonder, that sense of awe that plant healing can give you. Because at the end of the day, there is nothing more magical than drinking a nice infusion of herbs and feeling happy. No matter how you felt before, just having, being in a good place. Herbs make that energetic shift. And if we get too dogmatic, too serious, too stuck in our ways, we miss the magic. And I'm not talking magic in a witchy sense, just pure unadulterated mystery of life. And if you lose that, then you kind of are missing the point. <laughs> <laughs> Very yeah. well said. Very well said. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to, um, you know, give us some wisdom and just share your story with us. I know that as an herbalist, I always appreciate hearing everybody else's story and mm-hmm. seeing where we all came from. Because so far, I mean, everyone that I've interviewed, the intention is the same. And it's just beautiful to see that it doesn't matter where we come from. We're all on the same path and we all have the same goal in mind. So um, I appreciate all the work you do. Yeah, I appreciate what you're doing. So thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Herb Walk with Jessica Baker. And thank you, Amanda Klenner, for joining us and reminding us how important it is to use the herbs within our own bioregion. To learn more about bioregional herbalism, download the Herb Walk podcast on iTunes today. 